0: Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Gary. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm 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 getting ready to. Uh, no, I'm not getting ready to send you. a <laughs> review <you> call at <laughs> all, I'm barely, barely beginning it.
1: Let, let, let's cast a veil over that, shall we? G- given that isn't today the deadline, or was it yesterday? Hmm. Um. It's, um <laughs> yeah. Well.
0: Actually, it was yesterday in Australia, and it's today here. <laughs>
1: Somehow somehow I've never been able to make that distinction stick, you know. Uh, you know. And I guess we you know we could if we oh. wanted to um, clarify for our listeners the difference between a deadline and a drop dead deadline. And plainly there's still yes. some time, though I should never admit it. Otherwise we would have other issues. And I should also say out of you know, sort of in in all honesty, when I was a regular reviewer for the magazine, I was the worst offender for being yeah, I knew exactly when the drop dead, de- drop dead, drop dead, drop dead deadline was, mm-hmm. and generally that's about when my reviews came in. So whilst the deadline, well, this is, yep, mm-hmm.
0: uh, no, I, 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 and I've known for years what the drop dead deadline is. I mean, anybody who's been involved with the magazine, as you and I have, or any magazine, mm-hmm. knows that. Uh, what I've tried to do is to sort of. Um, Move my psychic clock back to where uh, <laughs> I pretend the drop – I try to pretend the the, the actual deadline is the drop-dead deadline. Because my theory is if you've got you've got basically four weeks to read a bunch of books. Uh, and you can do what most of us tend to do, uh, which is to read all of them in the last 48 hours.
1: <laughs> um, I, I don't. I could never read that fast.
0: <laughs> no, I can't read fast either. I, here's one of my confessions also as a reviewer. I don't read very fast.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, it was interesting in reading for the world fantasy awards when you're not reviewing something you can read much faster i discovered that yeah um, but uh, when you're trying to think of something to say about it then it, it it slows you down quite a bit uh but i have had in in, in every an astonishing number of of of, of, um, of cases the last one being the uh, hanu ryan name Ra- okay tell me how it is ryan yemi, ryan yemi um, yeah. came in literally three days yeah. Right. Exactly. And something comes in three or four days before deadline and it's exciting and it's scintillating and it's what you've been waiting for all month. And <laughs> your first thought is, why didn't they send me stuff like this earlier? You know, uh, I don't want to say I'm, – I'm not saying anything to demean whatever other books show up in that column, but uh, but there, there, there is this serendipity that happens when you get a really good book at the last minute and you think, I want to fit this in. And then you read fast. You yeah. read fast yeah. and carefully at the same time. But you have to have time to do that.
1: I, I do think you get that sort of – the excitement that any reader gets. You know, when that mm. book that you – you, you know, there's all the stuff you said you'd review. There's the stuff that you're re- reviewing or reading almost on an exploratory basis. You know, you're going, mm. yeah, I'll give it a go. And if it's interesting, then I can talk about it. Wouldn't that be great? But then there's the other stuff where you're going, oh, my God. It's you know, it's pretty soon we should get the galleys for the new Jeff Ryman collection, for example. Right? I'm going, Jeff Ryman? Yeah. Well, I want that. Jeff Ryman? Absolutely.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that happens. The last one, uh, Zero History, was very much like that. Everybody I know who's involved in reviewing, is, I can't wait to get their hands on that. And what are you doing? Everything can- goes on a-
1: What are you doing? Hmm? What are you doing? So- something's happening. I'm-, I'm getting a rumbled down the microphone.
0: Oh, really? Uh, yes. I don't know. Is it still are you, happening? A little.
1: Are you breathing directly on the microphone?
0: I, I don't believe so, but let me move the microphone a little bit further away. Does this help any? Try this. No, it's, Am I still it's, rumbling? Try, uh, yes. I'm not,
1: I'm not hearing anything on my end. I wonder what this is. Um, I'm getting like, I'm getting, like it's, it's like you're pushing something or...
0: Um, I'll try moving the microphone to my other ear and see if that helps.
1: It's weird. I don't know what it is. Sorry, everybody. I, I, yeah, here, 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 we here, are so
0: high tech. We're just yes, keeping up yes. our reputation being the highest tech. Is this any better?
1: Yes, it is. I, okay. I, I, just, I, I thought it was just gonna be one of those settling down things for some reason. And then it, it sounds as though maybe, maybe if you've got a headset on part of it was sort of rubbing against something or I don't know. that was very odd. Apologies, been, everybody. I apologize, since apologize since to you too because I mean, I know you were all, but I just I, I thought I'd mention it. so
0: I think that this just just in keeping with our reputation as being the lowest tech podcast on the web. I'm proud of that.
1: <laughs> well I mean heres here's our moment. We, we could stop, start over. Or just live with it. What do you think?
0: Was it bad enough that, uh, that, that we nah. think we should start it?
1: Okay. No, people will be able to mock us for weeks because of it, so that's all right. That's wonderful. I mean, I, I, I love contempt. I enjoy being <laughs> treated contemptuously. And- <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I, I do think that that immediate enthusiasm when it comes to um, the um, – <laughs> what are you doing? Did I do something there? Okay. Wait I'm, I think we're going to start this one over.
0: <laughs> I, am, I am now putting a microphone where nothing can possibly touch it except the air. Is this better? Yes. This should. should okay. This. The microphone is touching nothing. I guarantee you. I can see the, the microphone is at the level of my
1: left eye. <laughs> well, that's about where mine is actually. But all I could hear was this tapping and moving and I'm going – and having just reassured everybody that all was well, I thought, hang on a minute. What happened? Okay.
0: I think I think we may have solved the problem. If you can understand okay. me now, fine. I will yep. keep the mic. I will, I will I will not make any sudden motions.
1: <laughs> okay, we'll try to live with it. And it, look, everybody knows what they're getting when they download this podcast. You know, wit, wisdom, and really, really bad technology. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get told off. I mean, I I, I can tell you. I you mean, know, I have ordered a spiffy new microphone, Gary. And oh, that's. Imp- I have, yes. And I'm going to actually, I'm actually reading up bits of software because I I, I now want to make it just a little bit better so that we can pause and all that. So, Ah, okay, so we're going to forge on. Yes, let's
0: forge on. We were okay. talking about, or we, we, we it, okay, we prepared one thing for this podcast. We, we, we are did. very proud of this, folks. We have prepared something. We have. Um, well, can I? Well, we've raised a question. We, yes, well, we go have.
1: Ahead. Let's see if I can just dig it up for everybody so that they're aware. Basically, we posted episode fifteen in our awesome on mm-hmm. podcast series uh, just earlier this week after you know some various issues, and we received a comment from Susan Loyal, who was a you know, sort of Long-time listener, first-time commenter when it comes to the podcast, I think. Mm-hmm. And she suggested that as, fo- as amazingly sort of awesome as the whole um, uh, Things You Don't Need to Read segment is, it might be time to, you know, what is it, what, here's what she says. On the general subject of books you don't need to read, it has some charm, mm-hmm. but it may be fading a bit. And I thought, you know what? You might be right. We might have made the point you know, and we can continue to make it as a background point every now and again that there isn't any great compulsion beyond things being worth reading. She actually suggests we might consider mentioning, and this is, this is something we could do on an occasional basis, I suspect, if we wanted to. Books you need to read that were temporarily forgotten. <laughs> Which is interesting, but does contain the same compulsion. So maybe books you might like to read we'd temporarily forgotten.
0: That's a thought also I mean I first of all I, I, I tend to agree with her I mean if, if you know I, I, I love the idea of beating something to death and mm-hmm. then somebody pointing out to you that you've beaten it to death we yes. very well may have done that yeah uh, there are lots of categories one of my favorite openings to a novel yep is the opening of um, uh, Italo Calvino's if on a winter night uh, if on a yep. winter's night a traveler. Uh, which describes the reader going into a bookstore looking for the new uh, Italo-Calvino novel, <laughs> The Night of Travel, and, going, and go, going past all these piles of books that you always see in the, in, in the bookstore. Mm-hmm. And and there are, there are books that you uh, know you should read, books that you've always meant to read, and you think, I should read those. There are the books that you've known about for so long that you think you may have read the, read them but you're not sure. Yes. Uh, there are the books that you know you've read, but you don't remember at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and so forth and so on. And I, I, I thought it, w- it would be interesting to go through each of those categories of books. We've just simply gone through the category of books that you don't need to read. And every week when we do that, we have to have this caveat <laughs> that we're not saying you shouldn't read the books. We're not saying they're bad books. We're simply so. So yeah, I think we probably have beaten that to
1: death. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so we've made the point that nothing. Yeah. You know, at no point is this po- is this podcast saying you have to read something. No, we are never going to do that. Um, yeah. You know, and and please, should either of us slip, as we will occasionally, being human, and use the word need, please su- substitute might. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know. You uh, might want to.
0: This because um, again it goes back to the business of recommending books which we've talked yeah. about off and on again yeah. during the entire thing that you uh, unless you know somebody really really well you have no right to tell them they, they no, you, not you, at you all. don't know what they're going to look.
1: But well, also, I mean, they're all wow. reading for different reasons. I mean, uh, Tansy Roberts, who's a friend of mine, who's part of you know, sort of
0: mm-hmm. my,
1: my official feminist advisory committee, we were joking about that. She said we should and have part the
0: – Part of galactic suburbia, suburbia as well, yeah.
1: yeah, she was saying you know, we, we should have, have a T-shirt for the Cood, Street, the, the Cood Street Feminist Advisory Committee. And I'm almost tempted to do it, wouldn't it? Yeah. But uh, she was saying, you know, you get readers of different ages. And if you're a 25-year-old reader, you don't want to walk into science fiction and have the entire field say to you, Look, okay, nice to have you here, but could you just get over there and ca- catch up? Do your homework for the next 10 years, and then we'll have a chat.
0: Come back and take an exam. Yeah, the the science fiction entrance exam. That's it. On uh, the yeah. business. You, 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 you are, you're, unless you're this tall, you're not allowed to read Greg Egan. And <laughs> it's interesting because one of the things – actually, the, the review I'm working on right now is, mm-hmm. is an interesting anthology, which I am – Almost to my surprise, very pleased with It's the Wesleyan Anthology of yep. Science Fiction, which is intended for, for classroom use. It's edited by the editors of Science Fiction Studies, and it's a good anthology. Uh, but it's not a good anthology in the way it would have been 20 years ago. Okay. For example, uh, the um, because I was looking at it in terms of other iconic anthologies, and one of the problems for those of us who teach science fiction in college has always been What what, what do you assign them to read? I mean, most teachers want to assign them a bunch of novels, which is realistic. But then you try to find an anthology. Well, uh, uh, years ago, I read a survey of what were the most common anthologies taught. One was the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, the original Silverberg, not the the subsequent ones. Um, And uh, the other most popular one probably was uh, James Gunn's The Road to Science Fiction, Volume 3, from Heinlein to here. Yes, And they're both very, very good anthologies. The Science Fiction Hall of Fame is 40 years old now. Yep. Uh, the Gun Anthology is more than 30 years old now. Yep. And they both, uh, both of those anthologies were, of course, heavily, um, heavily emphasized the um, 1940s and 1950s. Um, that is, uh, that that that's a kind of historical view of the field. Which most of the older generation of readers grew up with, yeah. uh, but now you have a generation of readers. I would say the vast majority of science fiction readers began reading after the 1980s. Yes, um, and therefore, are those sort of classic works, the kinds of things you used to see in, I don't know, uh, *Adventures in Time and Space* back, are they still as important to the shape of the field? Um, as uh, oh, boy. as they once seemed, because I mean, here's an interesting thought. I mean, mm. I realize that the um, the science fiction hall of fame, um, and the I think if I'm not mistaken, yeah, the most recent stories in the science fiction hall of fame, edited by Robert Silverberg, are closer in time to the founding of Amazing Stories than they are to us today. Yep. Um, in other words, more history of science fiction has yep. passed since yes. that anthology than happened before it.
1: Absolutely, um, yeah. So,
0: so if someone's a young reader, I mean, but a young reader, at this point I'm talking about anybody, practically anybody under 50, yeah. um, then you're you're wondering, are those sort of classic, iconic, 40s, astounding John Campbell stories really the
1: center of the field anymore? No, they're not. They're, of course I mean, they're not. What you've got is you get that odd sense – there's, there's a difference between the center and the core, if you like. There, there, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's I guess, deep memory. There There's st- – there are works which are part of the deep memory of the field, and that are there mm-hmm. for scholars and people who happen to like a particular kind of fiction because that happens too. I mean, if you happen to across a copy of you know, Analog tomorrow for the first time and you read it and you love it, honestly, go get John W. Campbell's own short stories from the 50s and you'll probably love them. You know, there's a Don Stewart anthology mm-hmm. out from Nesfa. On the other hand, you know, if your introduction to the um, the field is, is say an old beaten up copy of Pam Sargent's Women's of One Women of Wonder you're probably not going to react well to it. And enough time has passed. I mean, we've said this. Generally, because the field keeps itself in dialogue with itself, um, most of the ideas are extrapolated to the current day in most ways. I mean, things fall in and out of fashion, but that's basically true. So you'll catch Ah. most of the ideas. There There are some areas of the field, as you read deeper into it, where Greater contextual knowledge is helpful, and certainly because the field is in dialogue with itself, there are illusions you may miss, but, you know, there are illusions that you can miss reading Moby Dick. You don't have to go back and read all, all of 19th century literature to decide that Moby Dick is far too long. Um, you know, so, no, I don't think you do. I mean, I, the, the thing that is strange, and this is, I think, an artifact for those of us who read a certain period of the field, mm. is... Younger readers being uninterested, and I, I've been really been kind of parsing this myself. Uh, is it kind of hurts your feelings a little in a weird way, because you know, mm-hmm. you, know you read when you when you were a, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young science fiction reader, you read Robert Heinlein, say, and you right. you loved it, right? It was great. Uh, you loved well, I I I loved Citizen of the Galaxy. I loved all those early novels. I loved Starship Troopers. I loved The Moon as a Harsh Mistress. Blah 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 blah, right? Right. Um, and now I encounter the Coop Street Feminist Advisory Committee, and they start say stuff to me like, "I read one Robert Heinlein book, and I don't really need to read any more ever again." And and part of me kind of goes, "Ah," and it sort of it kind of hurts my feelings a little bit for no rational reason. And I think that's part of the field's reaction. You know, you kind mm-hmm. of oh, and, and and there's nothing rational behind it. Um, it's it's just that. And then you get into a dialogue that gets quite. Uh, argumentative you can see it over on tour.com in their discussion mm-hmm. right now about Heinlein where people do get very prickly around him and it tends to sort of collapse into you know shouting matches rather than discussions because of the kind of things he dealt with his kind of attitudes and what, what's purported to be his attitudes and the fact that for a whole bunch of people he's so entwined with their initial reading of the field that maybe they don't have any real perspective on it at all right
0: I think that's true, and I think that we talked a little bit last week about uh, how you know you can't you can't approach Heinlein as though he were a single writer. I mean, the the author of Lifeline is not uh, the author of Time Enough for Love, mm, mm. Uh, and it's it's unfair to uh, approach any writer that way. But I think mm. what you're really talking about, which I find fascinating, is that there are for anybody there are two histories of science fiction. There is a history of science fiction which you learn by reading a lot in the field, studying it, reading histories of the field, talking to people. Mm. Um, and, uh, and you, you can write that any way you want, but you know that Vernon Wells are in there somewhere, and you know that Stapleton and Doc Smith are in there somewhere. That's not the history that people experience. That's the history you learn. The history that you experience is your personal history of the field. What yes. is the first science fiction book you read? What did it lead you to after that?
1: Yes. Um when, and, when someone uh, asks you what's your favorite favorite book in the field, what is it? Because you know, almost certainly you know, and what were those authors who mm-hmm. f- formed your awareness at, the, at a critical time? And then to what extent when you show up when you're 45 years old or something, are you trying to argue your own personal experience into being the history of the field?
0: I, that's exactly the question I'm, uh, I'm asking. And uh, as a result, everybody has a revisionist history of the field, mm. but uh, the chronology of the books that you read uh, and the chronology of – Books, as they appeared, uh, ha- have almost no relationship. No, uh, no, You're right. Somebody can start with Women of Wonder, and they can um, – uh, they might um, discover Lee Brackett through that. But by and large, that book is not going to lead them into the pulps. No. Um, you start with – I always wonder about a young – because uh, a, a writer who appeals to, to uh, really current young readers, obviously, it seems to me, is Cory Doctoral. Yeah. And if Cory Doctoral writes a story like I Rowboat, yep. um is that, is that going to lead people to Asimov, or is it necessary to go back and read Asimov to know what Corey is doing in that story?
1: It's not necessary at all. I mean, it, it's – well, okay. It's not necessary no, of any, not. Any, any more than it's necessary to go and read A.J. Budras because you're reading Al Reynolds, you know?
0: Yeah. It, it enriches the experience of reading, which is what we all do as we learn to read deeper and, and, and mm-hmm. thicker and more. Um, but it, if the story works, the story has to work on its own terms. Yes. Um, if uh, we've seen examples I mean Silverberg rewrites Joseph Conrad in The Secret Chair do yeah. you have to know Conrad for the Silverberg story to work? of course you don't no. if you do it's a richer story if, uh, if Benford rewrites Faulkner's The Bear in Against Infinity um, it can be a wonderful discovery when you realize that but Against Infinity has to work on its own terms and I think writers generally know that
1: yeah I, th- I think they do but I think the, p- the point where readers and commentators talking about the field fall into a trap is they collect these observations like you know little bits of treasure on a quest you know and then you sort of you share them sort of begrudgingly with others they're used as badges of i don't know club membership of sophistication of something so that when you mm-hmm. in, when you encounter so and so you know that person over there who's now Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and twenty-five, and reading into the field in depth for the first time, you you know, and they'll go, Mm -hmm. "Well, I read, you know, uh, Against Infinity by Greg Benford." You're going, "Oh, did you pick up the allusion to Faulkner?" And you're going, "Nah, how would I have done that?" Or more to the point, and this is because, Mm -hmm. frankly, that, that there's every chance they could do that. It's more like, did you pick up that allusion to that 1930s pulp story written by Edgar Pangborn, kind of a thing? And they're going, "Um, no, how would I have done that? I've never read that. And they go, oh, yes, well, you really need to go off and read that now.
0: Yeah, somebody's going to call in and tell you that Edgar Pangborn wasn't writing in the '30s, but we, we both know that.
1: <laughs> so, um, so in fact, what we're going to do right now is we're going to we have identified a whole class of conversation for our listeners to warn them, to free them, so that if you're ever in this conversation, run away. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's uh, don't don't allow yourself to be cornered. In fact, you need to learn the set of codes to be rescued from a conversation <laughs> from a fanatical science fiction reader who is much older than you, who is going to tell you everything you need to know about the history of the field. Um, and, and by the way, one of those is, which was taught to me by Neil Gaiman, mm. um, is that you make eye contact with somebody you know across the room and you sort of thoughtfully rub the back of your neck with your right hand as though you're really <laughs> listening to the person. But what it really means is, what it really
1: means is getting me the hell out oh. of this conversation. Yes, yes, yes. Well, actually, I, in fact, I even know the person he probably makes it to because he generally has the same mind at conventions every time.
0: Uh-huh. And um, I, I can tell you the person that uh, – well, no, I, oh, no, I'm certainly not going to name the person who had me cornered, uh, which resulted in Neil teaching me that little lesson. He <laughs> <laughs> said you should have done this.
1: I would have come and saved you. And you're going, ah, well, now I know. If I ever see it, I shall – of, mm-hmm. course the other, and of course, you can realize that for the hundred-odd dedicated listeners that we have, they realize that should they ever be in conversation with you and you start rubbing the back of your neck. Oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we would now exempt, you know, Our listeners from that And if you ever see Either of us do that It's just simply Because at that point We actually will have A stiff and sore neck That's
0: right A stiff neck Yeah I mean our listeners Are uh, None of our listeners Would I want to escape From conversation (laughs) with In fact I would love To have a conversation (laughs) With someone
1: Well you know Maybe That's that's an idea Just to sort of Jag around Maybe The next time you and I Are at a convention Together Wherever it may be We might um, Throw a little thing For podcast listeners And tell them they can come And we'll meet them In the bar or something that one afternoon. an excellent idea. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's a thought to, to keep in mind. So we, we're, we continue to absolve people. And it, it is interesting um, how we approach this and how we respond to it. And there are little things. I mean, I found out this week that the past through tomorrow by Robert Heinlein is out of print. Really? And it is. And I have to tell you, I was shocked. Now, it says something about me, the reader, that I was shocked, Right. But I was. It just seemed it seemed wrong that this core group of future history stories, which are frankly readily available, um, but nonetheless are out of print. You're not going to walk into Barnes and Noble or Dimmicks or whatever the you know Waterstones in the United States, in the UK and pick up a copy of this seminal book, which and I yeah you know, and then part of me sort of thought well. Do you need to grab your copy off the shelf and read it on the plane on, plane on the way to Worldcon just to refamiliarize familiarize yourself with it to make sure that you're right? Maybe, mm. it deser- maybe it belongs out of print, but I can't believe it.
0: I think – I mean there there are a couple of very speculative things we could say, one of which involves the wishes of the Heinlein estate at this point mm-hmm. because it was a compilation. And, um, and the goal of the estate is to make sure that everything in its original form was in print. I am old enough to remember when The Past Through Tomorrow came out. Yeah. And my first reaction was it's great to have all these things in one place but I own them already. Yeah. I just I just haven't put them together in that particular format. Yeah. I mean I got the book because I wanted that seminal reference as
1: you mm-hmm. say. Yeah.
0: Um but as uh, but it, as I say it's a compilation of other Heinlein pieces that are available in other Heinlein books and that very well may be that whoever is in charge of that doesn't feel it's necessary anymore.
1: Well or um, it maybe the sales weren't there that's the most likely thing because me otherwise What's more were-
0: likely? Yeah. That's true. You know, but I mean... Which is is distressing in its own way.
1: Eh, Well, yes. I mean, again, that's one of those things where it's that personal feedback. I mean, it's it's a book that's important to me for various reasons. It's a book, as I've said before here, that Charles and I used to talk about. And I've sort of been dancing around during the year whether or not I'm going to suck it up and spend a couple of hundred dollars and buy a first edition of it or not. Right. Um, And, you know, I might. I kind of feel like I'd like to have one. And, and, and I, I also appreciate that if I ever walk past a dealer's table, you know, at World Fantasy or at World Conor, and they have a first edition sitting there, and it's not ridiculously expensive, yeah, it might go home with me. Um, because I kind of want one. I don't know
0: why. Well, I think uh, – well, I mean, because it, it goes back to the generational thing. It's because mm. it goes, it's – it goes back to how you learned about the field. Your friends your, your friends at Galactic Suburbia, Tansy, probably don't want the book
1: at all, I'm, no, I'm guessing. No, I'm, I'm sure field, you're no probably need. right, and I have no criticism of that. I mean, Tansy, in fact, was just uh, raving – I think it's a fair statement – raving about Joanna Russ's How to Suppress Women's Writing, mm-hmm. saying that she'd finally – read the book and she wished she'd read it five or six times previously in her life when various things were happening, when she was arguing with her uh, doctoral thesis people and uh, when she was starting university and that she actually would break her own rules and say, this is a book you need to read, you need to read, you know, how to suppress women's writing. But.
0: It's, a, it's, it's a classic book and it's a very prescient book in many ways because she was, um, as, we've, as we've talked before, she was one of the major mm. critics in the history of the field. And that book is not specifically about science fiction, no. but it deals with the various ways in which you pretend, you know, that uh, the, she, she, she wrote it, but she was crazy. Her husband really wrote it. One of the one of the things I think she mentions in this book mm-hmm. is uh, is Frankenstein, is Mary Shelley yes, Frankenstein, she does. Yeah. because there was common assumption that uh, well Percy must she was he, she was a teenage kid, heaven's sake. Yeah. Percy of course he wrote it. Well, last year I did not review it for Locust, but uh, I don't even think Charles meant for me to do. But he sent me a copy of this. A uh, new, very oral edition of Frankenstein, which includes passages that Percy had written, oh, okay. um, and which were not in the final edition. And guess what? Percy was not nearly as good as Mary was. <laughs> His stuff was florid and long and boring and philosophical. <laughs> and, her, and she was writing an adventure horror story.
1: Uh, <laughs> and I thought,
0: well, yeah, of course. Uh, she was completely uh, – there, there it, it, it failed. But there was an attempt over – nearly a century to erase her from that book and, yes. and and Russ's book is about all the ways you can erase women from uh, from from books they've actually uh, written and it's uh, it, it's one you want to internalize that book I know exactly what Tansy's thinking about because you want to uh, show that to everybody who has uh, thought about well let's say okay there's uh, she wrote the book but it's only one sort of crazy off book like uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman writes the yellow wallpaper and you know and and, and we erase for a long time. Uh, one of the sort of classic feminist utopias was Gilman's Hurland. Yeah. For a long time, until it got rediscovered mostly by feminist critics in the sixties, that was a forgotten book. Yes. Uh, Gilman was only known for that one kind of quirky uh, horror story, really. Yes. Yes. So, so, so there, there's a lot of validity to that. And I, uh, one of the things I would recommend to our listeners is that there are certain works, not that many, there are certain works of literary criticism. Um, including all the ones written by me, of course, (laughs) that are probably worth reading um, because they they do give you a different perspective on things. Um, uh, One of the things that fascinated me about this Wesleyan anthology, for example, is that um, we were talking about the 1940s, um, and there are 52 stories in this anthology, and if I were to say this to most people of my generation or maybe even your generation, this would sound shocking, but of these 52 stories, A total of four of them come from the 1940s.
1: Okay. Um,
0: Now, up until about the mid-60s, maybe the 1970s, most historical anthologies of science fiction would have been dominated by the 19. Absolutely. Uh, And there are more stories. There are something like, let me think. Uh, I've got it written down here. Um, Nine stories from the 1980s. Yeah. Well, this is kind of the point I was making earlier. The 1980s. Right now, from today's perspective, is as seminal a decade in science fiction as the 1940s was.
1: Ooh, ooh, the 1980s. Huh. The 1980s. Sure. No, I can see uh, that. No, I can.
0: Uh, the, the 60s 60s may be the most prolific decade of all because of all kinds of reasons. You had the British New Wave, the American New Wave. You had Ellis and Ballard and, and, and Aldous and uh, Lafferty and – and, and Phil Dick and that Of
1: sort course, of yeah, yeah
0: But the 1980s The 1980s were actually You know, this is when you're starting to get Gibson, uh, Sterling, Egan, Gibson, Robinson,
1: you know, Shepard, Swanwick
0: Right, Octavia Butler You're getting yes. major, well, some of the major works By, by Kate Willem in that Yep. Uh, and it's... Uh, it's – the problem is you don't have a single location. This is one of the things that happened to the field. In the 1940s – and I, I used to do this. I went back and looked. It was, wasn't just Adventures in Time and Space, that famous 1946 yeah, yeah. anthology stayed in, in, in print forever. But all the groff Conklin anthologies, up through the 1950s, they were just mining astounding yes. science fiction of the 40s. I mean I yeah. – uh, somebody should do this count, and if, uh, if, if somebody's done it online, please let me know because I'm curious about it. I'm wondering how many of the entire run of stories um, and astounding from, let's say, 1939 through 1950 haven't been anthologized. It seems to me that <laughs> everything that, uh, that, that seemed to show up – well, the, the 40s is very well represented in that period. Yeah. Um, but most of those stories are more and more of the same thing. Yeah. Um, you can and, and and I'm convinced and I I'm, I'm not I'm not entirely convinced because I haven't thought it through yet that yeah you have to represent the key stories of the 40s that still seem to echo today yeah. not the ones that seemed important in 1950 or 1960. And in terms of echoing today the, those stories of the of the 80s uh, probably are more much larger part of the experience of the majority of science fiction readers today than the stories of the 40s are
1: true. The only difference is, and I think this is a key difference in 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 the current evolution, the recent evolution of the field, is that the field became a novel-based field, you know, from from the you know from the 50s on, but really from the 70s on. The 50s on, yeah, that's a good point. And so, when you attempt to represent that period, then you end up with an awful lot of novels to deal with for various reasons, and you can't anthologize them neatly. And to some degree, that's why I think you struggle to create a modern anthology that as accurately represents the field as the anthologies covering the 30s, 40s, and 50s are. That's uh, true.
0: That's true. And I, and I have to admit as a footnote or as a parenthesis that I absolutely hate anthologies that are full of novel excerpts. Me
1: too. Because I, they almost
0: yeah. never work. No, you, they don't. You can't get a sense of them. Now, fortunately, Gibson has written enough short fiction that – uh, that exemplifies his, his his point of view, his style, his innovation, his attitude towards science fiction. Yes. You can choose something like Burning Chrome, for example,
1: yeah.
0: uh, or the Gernsback Continuum, and, and you can kind of get the point.
1: Can, 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 I, uh, can I interrupt and say there's, there's a place where you can see the difference, and do you know where it is? Mm, in, where? The, in the great big fat anthologies that Dave Hartwell does. Mm -hmm. And this is not supposed to be in any way an attack or criticism on David because he was doing definitive academic um, anthologies for Tor, big fat ones. But he did a really terrific horror book, uh, The Dark Ascent, I think it was.
0: The Dark Descent.
1: Descent, sorry, The Dark Descent. Now, The Dark Descent worked because the horror field has always retained a steady production of short fiction. And, Mm And there are as many key works there as not. However, in in the science fiction field, it falls apart. So if you look at his space opera renaissance, it's a horribly Mm. flawed book because through the whole period of modern space opera, it's all novel-based. He can't get – I mean he's trying to shoehorn stuff in there that doesn't really fit. And you see it again when he does the science fiction century where he makes the Mm. deeply, deeply, deeply flawed Maybe I'll add another deeply, deeply flawed decision mm-hmm. to omit Heinlein, Clark, and Asimov from the book because they're already so widely anthologized. But also because yeah. in the second half of that book, when you get into the modern era, you know you you can't you can't sort of represent um, all of the, you know, the the vagaries of the field or, or, or the, you know, the fine points of the field in short fiction, and you see it as a, a problem that Norton and, and Atter, no, no, so that. Yeah, uh, Le Guin and Hatterby, Le Guin, the, North, the, North, the North Norton, Norton book, fiction, yeah. that they struggle with when they're doing their book, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I haven't seen anybody overcome it yet. And I don't know that it can be overcome. I think it may, it's just an institutional problem. And I, I gave it some thought because I had considered suggesting to someone that there should be a you know, a new Science Fiction Hall of Fame, a book that covered from 1967 until now, mm-hmm. since the first book covers up till 1967. But then, when you begin to look at it, you suddenly realize: well, all these key figures maybe never wrote a major science fiction story. Do you simply mm-hmm. o- omit them? I mean, you know, does Ian Banks not appear because his short fiction is minor?
0: Um, that's a, that's a problem. Uh, admittedly, it's a problem. It's not it's not always a problem when you no. look at. It, I'm looking at some of the names here. I'm mean, looking at. Gene Wolfe has written a lot of good oh, yes. short fiction. Hundreds. Uh, Bruce yeah. Sterling's short fiction. Yes. Uh, Jeff Ryman has shorts, and Charlie Strauss even, I mean, you can take a piece of Accelerando and, because those were published as stories. Mm. Um, so there, there, there's, there's a fair way of representing, uh, or let me say not representing, but approximating the nature of the field since then. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a problem, by the way, speaking of, since this is a teaching anthology, speaking of people who've tried to teach science fiction in the college classroom, um, uh, the, the, uh, the idea of putting out massive anthologies, um, uh, and this may be the best one out there, to tell you the truth, uh, is problematical because most teachers want to assign a bunch of novels, and you really can't assign. There was actually an anthology of science fiction stories that came out last year. Uh, there was twelve hundred science fiction stories and a bunch of essays related to them. It's twelve hundred and some pages long. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to get a group of students today uh, to read that in one semester, and to read a bunch of novels. I mean, can you really teach science fiction today without having them read? Or you, you, let's no. say you could. Let's say you could skip the time machine. Uh, let's say you can skip Vern. Let's say you just dealing with.
1: But, you know, can you avoid Neuromancer? No, I don't Um, think you can. Um, You do make me sort of think, though. I mean, I don't know how big the the academic market is and whether it's worth publishing books especially for them. But Mm, but, I don't think
0: it will. We'll talk about that in a minute.
1: (laughs) But would it um, address academic concerns if, for example, you did – Readers. I mean, I know, I know it's a big academic thing. You know, the, the John McPhee reader. The There's a Joe Lansdale mm-hmm. reader somewhere or other. Where basically, if you did a William Gibson reader, you'd do Neuromancer plus three or four short stories in the one book. Mm-hmm. Um, that'd be a very attractive
0: option for a lot of teachers. Whether the market is large enough for it, I don't know. Because mm-hmm. uh, the problem, and I have, I've had conversations with Tom Doherty and among others. I was, I was years ago. I was working on. Uh, uh, what was to be a major science, teaching science fiction anthology. And I, I got fired from the project because I didn't do anything on it. I should have been fired. <laughs> yeah. um, I had all kinds of personal issues at the time. Mm-hmm. and uh, But I remember having conversations at the time saying that people overestimate – Uh, the size of the academic market for science fiction. There are, if you look at the whole census in science fiction studies, the journal did this census a few years ago. There are theoretically hundreds of science fiction uh, courses being taught worldwide. But when you realize, first of all, they tend to be advanced level courses with maybe 30 students in them. They tend to be taught not every semester, but maybe once every two years. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the annual sales market for all the science fiction texts going into the (laughs) academic (laughs) market combined is maybe Maybe 10,000
1: copies. Um, And then you'd have to get all of it. That's not really enough. No.
0: Yeah, you have to get all of it. Uh, The Norton Norton Book of Science Fiction, a parenthesis, which is very academic, but I can be pedantic because I am an academic. The Norton Book of Science Fiction is not called a Norton Anthology of Science Fiction. Because the Norton Anthology of English Literature, the Norton Anthology of American Literature, the Norton Anthology of World Literature are meant to be fairly definitive representations of. All of that literature, that's why they're, you know, 12, 1,400 pages long each. A Norton book means it's an anthology. It doesn't mean okay. it's, it's supposed to be definitive. And when when, when Brian and, um, and Ursula uh, put together the Norton book, they made a uh, an editorial decision, which you could never have done with a Norton anthology, that they were going to confine themselves to North American science fiction since 1960 yep. in the short form. Uh, yep. that's a serious constraint uh, if you're actually looking at the shape of the field.
1: Sure. Hmm. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, I do wonder about how you you, know, you address the academic market because, of course, it is such a small one, and and mm-hmm. how and how it you know rolls into these things like like historical anthologies. Do we need them?
0: Um. Here's the here's my answer answer to that. Now I, I am i'm almost surprised at how impressed i am with the with, with the norton book yeah uh, not the norton book the um the wesleyan the book yeah yeah uh, uh up until now the two most popular teaching anthologies as i mentioned were yes. james Gunn's Lord of Science. well those were both popular anthologies and teaching anthologies yes you know if you wanted to get a sense i mean the jim Gunn, the jim Gunn four volume series is still the closest thing we probably have to a definitive science fiction anthology Unfortunately, mm-hmm. only one of them is still in print. I'm not even sure that one is still in print. The volume 3, the one which yeah,
1: is… Yeah, it is. I've got okay. it in my hands right volume now. Volume 3. Yeah.
0: Okay, excellent. But, but Volume 1, which is like, like the prehistory of science fiction, is, mm-hmm. is not. And, and there were a couple of other volumes later on. Um, that I think one dealt with international science fiction and one was just kind of uh, stuff since the first volume. Um, by and large, uh, that was a very comprehensive anthology. What you have to do now is, I think, make a decision… That you're going to look at science fiction as it's read by its readers and not as we would like it to be because yeah. the classic problem of historical anthologies of science fiction was we have to establish a pedigree for ourselves. You know, we're this despised, pulp, second-rate uh, literature. We're being kept out of the fern-drenched reference in New York where yeah. the New York Review never looks at us and so on. And um and so we're going to go back, and we're going to say, well, Swift was writing science fiction, and Plato was writing science. Fiction. <laughs> Lucian of Samosata was writing, and Kepler and uh, Campanella's, uh, and, and, and and so you create this. Uh, there's a there's a classic anthology from the early 50s by August Durlauf, which is just full of these things. You yeah. Know? yeah. And, and and you end and so so end up in those anthologies. Well, actually, this does happen in the Wesleyan anthology. I'm not giving away too much of my review. <laughs> where you read. Uh, EM Forster's The Machine Stops, which is one of the most anthologized science fiction stories by a mainstream writer ever. Yeah. And it's, it's a very moving story. And in some ways, for a story published in 1909, it's absolutely astonishing. Yeah. Um, but then you go from that into Edmund Hamilton. Um, and there's – okay, there's a little there's a little bit of a shock of adjustment when you realize that the proto-history of science fiction takes you up to Wells and Stapledon and maybe Forrester – and then you're dealing with Doc Smith and Edmund Hamilton. Uh, how do you put those things together in your mind?
1: Yeah, I know. You don't. Know, they just don't go together, do they?
0: Mm, no, not at all.
1: Uh. And by and large,
0: here's my other argument. Yep. That there are two uh, – I said there were two histories of science fiction. There are three histories of science
1: fiction. <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: The first is your personal history of science of fiction. Of course, which yep. varies from personal And the second is, is what I think of as – what Charles always talked about as the conversation. Yeah. Um and the conversation, for all practical purposes, probably began with Vernon Wells, because those are writers to whom we can trace direct responses in later science fiction writers.
1: Okay, they yeah. were
0: both reprinted. They were both reprinted along with Edgar Allan Poe in the early issues of Amazing Stories, and writers. Entered into dialogue with those stories. They didn't into dialogue They didn't enter into dialogue with uh, Lucian of Samosata. <laughs>
1: <heaven's sake. laughs>
0: no, no, it was one of these ancestors that was exhumed long after the field had established itself. Um, so, so, so the second history of the field is the conversation. Science fiction, which is self-aware as a genre, yeah. where writers are actually picking up themes from other writers, answering other writers. If Wells writes a time travel tale, we have a whole. Uh, you know, succession of time travel tales yes. everybody knows they're in the Wells tradition Yeah. the third history is this essentially fake history where you can go back to the 15th century you can go back to Plato and say well these things kind of look like science fiction no. so we're going to just abduct them and, and, and count them I don't believe for a minute that David H. Keller M.D. was thinking about uh, Lucian of Samosata <laughs> when he was writing his pulp stories in the 30s
1: I'm sure you're you're completely right I mean, yes, I'm completely sure because he said so that um, Asimov was thinking about, the, you know, Gibbon's *Decline and Fall* when he wrote mm-hmm. *Foundation*. But I'd also say that was, let's be fair, an exception.
0: That was an exception, and it wasn't. It wasn't a proto-science fiction work.
1: No, no, uh, no, I know. But I mean, it, it was all about you know, pimply twenty-year-old boys on the streets of Brooklyn, half the, for the most of it, it seems like, knocking out adventure stories for fun.
0: Sure, absolutely, and 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 once that rhythm got established in the in in the, in the 20s and 30s and 40s they were they were talking to each other and the conversation is yeah. absolutely real I mean you find people doing variations on robot stories and variations on invisibility mm. and time travel and uh, mm. and, and uh, generation starships and so forth it became a game for people let's see if we can do a different version of this yeah um, but that's not the same thing as saying that these people were all uh, looking back to to, to predecessors and no. one of the things that was interesting and Asimov uh, I don't tend to think of Asimov as a particularly literary writer, but he was one of the first people who I think made it clear to the science fiction community that writers don't just look at their science fiction precedents. They read lots of things. Yes. When he made it clear, when he made it clear, as he did repeatedly, that he was using Gibbon's Decline and Fall, one of the things he was saying to the science fiction readership was that, you know, it wouldn't hurt you to read some things that aren't science
1: fiction every <laughs> once in a while. Well, yes, and one of the funny things is, of course, that whilst – I think we've said this before – when you talk to um, science fiction writers, generally what you find is they all kind of read science fiction obsessively when they were kids or at some Mm -hmm. point in their teens, wherever it might have been, and then they stopped pretty much. And by and Mm -hmm. large, they read other things now, partly because I guess for reasons, you know, keep maintaining their own sanity, they couldn't bear the prospect of having to read it all the time because it's what they're thinking about it all the time anyway. Mm -hmm. And also, and you see this perhaps with the Fred Poles of this world as an example, um, what they're doing is they're stoking their conceptual fires by reading other things or giving themselves downtime or whatever it is. And it it really isn't necessarily healthy. Or a good idea to you know, only ever read um, awesome piles of science fiction.
0: Well, here's a good example. Um, there's a story, and I'm, I think I've got the right title, uh, by Jim Kelly called "Burn." Uh, James Patrick Kelly, excuse me. Uh, yeah. um, is a, and as, as I recall, I, I hope I'm getting this right. As I recall, that's largely a critique of Henry David Thoreau. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I mean, he, he knows – I mean, uh, Jim Kelly is in, in, immersed enough in the science fiction field that he knows how to play games with earlier science fiction. Mm-hmm. And if you look at his story, Think Like a Dinosaur, which in many ways is a critique of Tom Godwin's The Cold Equations, mm. um, that's – okay, that's that's Jim Kelly playing games in the science fiction field. Yes. If you look at Burn, which uh, – I'm, I'm mistaken, it got an award or two. Uh, it's, it's Jim it's, Kelly yeah. looking Nebula. outside the science fiction field. It me, is, got yes. a Nebula, okay. Excellent. He's looking outside the science fiction field and saying, "Look, uh, science fiction no longer has to respond only to itself. It can respond to anything. Yeah. You know, we can take anything as our source material, and we don't. Uh, and and we can assume, or we can hope, at least, that our readers will get that. Yeah. Um, I mean, and and to some extent, if you look at the rhetoric within individual science fiction stories, yeah. there is a difference because in *Burn*, um, and I'm doing this entirely from memory, so. Uh, Jim Kelly can correct me on it. In Burn, he mentions Thoreau. He, he says, yeah, "Okay, yeah. This, this is about Thoreau." And think like a dinosaur. He never mentions the cold equations. No, because uh, that's for the prepared reader. That's that's a kind of of inside joke for uh, for science fiction readers. At the same time, of course, you don't need to know the cold equations at all for think no. like a dinosaur. Work as a, I think, a very exactly. terrific story.
1: Let me ask you a question about something that a, a pl- a f- occurred to me the other day because I was pondering the cold equations. Is it really just a smug, nasty story? Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, I, I was thinking cool. about but we know histori- historically that Campbell interfered horribly with the writing of that story. Yeah? Mm-hmm. We know that he pushed an, a, Godwin deliberately to make it so that the girl had to die. And we start with the fact that, first of all, you know... Why would there have to be a girl who dies? Because it's, it's a dumb girl, right? I mean, you know, the dumb girl it's, has to you know, die. Let's,
0: let's, yeah, let's give her some credit. She's an innocent, young thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. But, but but there's that sort of you – yeah. Know, you can just see it, though. It's like teenage boys, right, playing a game. Well, sure. And it's the dumb girl they don't want to play with, even though, of course, she's not dumb at all. That's not the point. But she's a dumb girl in inverted commas. And she's come along, and she's done something wrong, and she has to be brave and all that and basically – kill herself by walking out the door of the um, spaceship because there's no alternative when of course, of course there would be an alternative in any rational bit of you know, spaceship building and mission construction and everything. else. You would never expose yourself to that sort of circumstance um, in a million, million years. And I kind of felt as I was thinking about it, yeah, was it them going, sort of look at how we're making hard science fiction appear harder than it is, if you like, you know, harsher than it is, because these are the cold realities of the world. Well, of course they're not. And it's just – yeah, it's just smug and nasty. Of course and they're not. And, and, well, the cold
0: equations has the distinction, which I probably could prove this if I had to, of having been attacked more often in the criticism of science fiction than any other single stories. Yeah. And everybody. And recently as, recently as three or four years ago, I think in, uh, in, in David Hartwell's New yes, York Review of Science yeah. Fiction – Andy Duncan did a piece about it, Mm -hmm. Um, and pointing out all the ways that the story is contrived. I mean, the story doesn't make sense even as a hard SF story. Uh, You can't can't imagine – some kind of massive galactic empire that doesn't have enough fuel uh, to, for, for a return of the voyage. They're all—you could throw the chairs out, you know, for heaven's sake. Uh, the story is just so contrived that it doesn't work at all uh, yeah. as, as a story. And yet, uh, and, and, and to somewhat, well. Defend Campbell uh, because I read a couple of other things by Godwin. I know he wrote one novel, which was published under the title of mm-hmm. under two titles. Let me think. One was the space the space prison or something like that, and the survivors was the main title. It yep. was published, and they were both frontier stories. I mean, yep. he was a guy, and he was from what I know, from the little I know about him. I mean, talk about a guy who has a one-story reputation. He was he was a westerner. He was kind of a frontier cowboy type guy who yep. uh, wanted wanted the the kind of tough frontier thing that you had so in a sense uh, the conception the initial conception of uh the cold equations wasn't that much different from the school marm on the wagon train sort of mm, conception yeah, yeah um and and campbell made him change the ending but he campbell didn't make him change the basic conception of the story which was a pretty uh well pretty sexist set of assumptions to begin with yeah and as a result the story became uh uh it's had this wonderful reputation of for a few years – I mean it shows up in those uh, James Gunn anthologies. Mm. For many years, it was the archetypal science fiction story. The universe will not yield to our wishes. Mm. And then now it's become the archetypal really awful science fiction <laughs> story that, that misuses the notion of hard science in the service of um, uh, of sexist and imperialist and then and, and sort of macho values.
1: Yeah. So does it now go into our, our, our special Hall of Fame for, for things you actually don't need to read? I think – well, I
0: don't know. I would not I, – I want to start a new category. Okay. Things if – when you read them, you will be utterly appalled if you haven't read them yet. Um, and I think this is one of those.
1: Oh, okay. So, so it's the drive-by Hall of Fame. Okay. The
0: drive-by Hall of Fame. There we go. Exactly.
1: Um, uh, well, that's somewhere here, for, I mean, for it. I mean, oh, gosh. Okay. Well, you know,
0: one of the things that's interesting, though, that fascinates me is when you look at – there's stories like that which date horribly. Yes. No. And, you know, we can make all the defenses in the world that uh, the, the kind of you, – you, you make uh, the argument, I mean, Asimov's one female character essentially was Susan Calvin. Mm-hmm. And the only way he could write a female character who was intelligent was to make her a spinster. Uh, <laughs> he couldn't you – know, Su- Susan Calvin can't have a romantic life of no. any sort at all. Because she's a thinker, and if women think, they don't get married. I mean, that's kind of the world that Asimov seemed to live in, at least when he was writing those stories.
1: Susan uh, Provinci's world, they, th- yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly, right, exactly. It's the, uh, She's the, uh, uh, the one who doesn't get to go to Narnia. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and that kind of thing is – I have mixed feelings about that. On the one hand… It's very difficult to reconstruct that world. Uh, there's a TV series yeah. in the United States. I don't know if you're getting it in Australia yet, called Mad Men. Yeah, we do. It's set yeah. in the okay early early 1960s advertising agency.
1: Yeah. And I've
0: talked to my 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 stepdaughter and her friends about it. They are, as far as they're concerned, it's a science fiction series. Yeah. It is set in a world so alien to them yes. that they can't imagine the assumptions that people lived with. Men and women lived with. During mm-hmm. that period. And, and to, to that reason, I think it's a very valuable. Uh, lesson, because it's the same lesson that people have to try to at least understand, if not sympathize with, mm-hmm. when you're looking at the way uh, Heinlein or Asimov or people like that were writing in, in the 40s and 50s. It's complicated by the fact that you had some very uh, astonishingly, by today's standards, liberated writers like Sturgeon writing at the same time. Yep. Um, in other words, it wasn't impossible to write uh, stories about gender imbalance or cho- stories about queerness or stories about... Um, uh, fetishes and so forth. But, um, but very, very few people were doing it.
1: Yeah. Very. Few. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's, it's, it, it, one of the things, the other, other, the other thing that's interesting to me, and this is why I depend so much on talking to younger readers when I can, is what stories from that period don't seem to date as badly. Um, we yeah. were looking in the, uh, we were looking at the last volume of the collected stories of Theodore Sturgeon, Mm-hmm. Is out now, and he was writing stories in the early fifties that are just amazing. The world well lost beyond yes. his hands, and that's sort of yep. they read like modern short stories today. Yep. Uh, the the Wesleyan anthology has a story uh, which I'm very pleased to see uh, by Avram Davidson, the Golem, yes. which is very, very funny story, mm-hmm. uh, very very modern. Uh, there's a bunch of stories in another little category I was thinking about. All the post-nuclear war stories, of which there were literally hundreds yes. uh, between 1945 and 1965, probably.
1: Sure, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: uh, and, and some of them by very good writers. Like mm-hmm. The one that holds up, the one that really works, is Fritz Leiber's coming attraction.
1: Because he could write like crazy.
0: Because he could write like crazy, and because he was smart enough to know that this kind of catastrophe doesn't need to be nuclear war no no because he also was going to talk about what would happen to things like sexual mores, like uh, social interactions he was he was he was basically writing a a classic kind of uh, post-catastrophe story in which catastrophe could be anything yeah and thinking it through in a way that other people didn't
1: yeah Uh, well i mean so so it's possible it's
0: possible to pick I was just going to say, it's possible to pick stories out of that era.
1: I suspect going back to the 30s
0: yeah. that still seem astonishingly modern, and others that seem like, wow, how could they have ever thought like that?
1: Well, I, I, I think as what. Well, well, there's there's two things that I think that stand out like, you know, a sore thumb, as I neatly avoid a piece of Australian vernacular that I very nearly injected into the podcast, um, mm-hmm. and they are portrayals of technology. And portrayal mm. of attitudes to gender or race. Those are the two things, I think, that really harshly stand out in a story. Uh, and if you avoid those two, the chances are your stories don't date as badly. I mean, when I was reading along with Charles to do the um, Fritz Library Selected Stories, mm. I got a, a recommendation from somebody to read, oh, what was the name of the story? The Man Who Loved Electricity or something, I think it is. I think there's one with a title like that. It's it, it's either exactly that, or a variation on it. And basically, yeah, it's this man sitting on a hillside somewhere in San Francisco, and he's hearing the the, the electricity and the wires talk to him. And uh-huh. it just seems really dated and strange. Um, and yet, you if you pick up, I mean, the obvious one, you, you know, to switch across to say the the stuff stories, where it's secondary mm-hmm. world fantasy, it doesn't date at all, because it doesn't have Technical portrayals. If you go, if you pull out um, a- any portrayal of the future to some degree that that you come across that deals with um, transport technology or anything, like that, you're going, you can't help but go. Well, hang on. Nobody built you know sort of underwater cities. And we don't have cleared. I mean, clear tubes that we drive through in our nuclear-powered cars. I mean. Uh, Paul Filippo, who I'm beginning to think mm. may be actually the last surviving Futurian. Sometimes he he he, mm. he talks like he was born in 1915, which <laughs> which is very strange. But he posted on his blog a link to this eight-minute-long animation done by somebody uh, portraying um, you know the future, you know the future and the way it will be. It would have been from the early 1950s, I guess. Uh-huh. And everybody's driving atomic cars, and there are cantilevered roads hanging off the side of cliffs, and uh, the roads drive the cars for you, and you're going underneath city, and all this stuff, and you're going, this is really sweet and quaint and nice, but it's horribly dated, because we never would build anything like that, because it makes no sense at all, as nobody no. actually...
0: The stuff is absolutely delightful. I mean, that's essentially the, the idea behind the Gernsback continuum as well. Mm, yeah. And there's a there's a book coming out I'll probably touch upon it at least in, in, in the next column, which was put together by Rose Fox, but is collected. Her name is on it somewhere. It's one of these project books. She's project. Or something. It's a collection of uh, pieces from, I guess, mechanic, popular mechanics from the 30s and 40s. and 50s oh, yeah. about the wonderful future kind of thing. Yes. You know, the same same kind of thing. You know, the personal heliport. You know, the the, the aqua cars, the uh, 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 home. Uh, and 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 it's it's absolutely charming and amusing. And you think, wow, we didn't do that. Um, and it's easy to make fun of that sort of thing when it appeared in Popular Mechanics magazine, because there are, or, or the Saturday Evening Post. The problem, with it, and it's also the reason I think that science fiction dates so much more easily than than horror yeah. or fantasy yeah, fiction. You mentioned true. the Lachmar yeah. stories. Well, has, you know, conceptually, stylistically, I mean, because Lyber was an astonishingly sophisticated writer, even for his era. You know, I'm not sure that the sword and sorcery genre has quote-unquote, advanced much beyond what Libra was doing.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, well speaking of someone who... Writes who a story,
0: yeah. When he writes a story like A Pale of Air, well, actually, A Pale of Air holds up pretty well. But the story you were mentioning, for example, it can yeah. date very badly very quickly.
1: Yeah, there, there's several of, of, of you know, fortune, unfortunately, sort of, I, I would have rushed off and pulled my copy of selected stories off the shelf so I could appear far more... Um, uh, educated than I am but but all that's all my libraries I think oh no there it is hang on let's see let's hope I don't unplug my microphone as I leech down across the other side of my office uh, because here we go pull this out yeah see when you pull it, if, if you look back at the old science fiction stories that he did um, some of them I mean the man who made friends with electricity from 1962 reads like it could have been mm-hmm. in 1930 right yeah um, it's dated it doesn't come across very well a pale of air is a bit. I mean, anything where you've got you know an astronaut sort of, or or uh, tracking tracking across the moon or something, they tend not to d- date very well. Right. But space time from Springer's is never going to date. No. Uh, going to roll the bones is never going to date. Um, America the Beautiful does date a bit, but it's still good. You know. Mm-hmm. So so the science fiction stuff is always more more likely to, to date and to, to have us sitting there going. But what were they thinking? I mean, while you're talking, the thing that occurred to me was, can you imagine how disappointed the um, attendees of the first science fiction World Science Fiction Convention in New, New, York, New York in 1939 would be with, 19, uh, with 2010? Mm-hmm. They'd yeah. be horri- horribly disappointed, I'm sure of it, because it just, nothing turned out.
0: Yeah, uh, there was a. Um, it's interesting to look at. Uh, the, the interesting contrast there is between, uh, believe it or not, historians and futurists. There, mm-hmm. there was, and I guess still is, this community of people who think of themselves as futurists. I used to read the, the, the magazine called the Futurist, the World Future Society Bulletin, which I believe mm-hmm. is still being published. Yep. Um, and and then those magazines are like the Popular Mechanics magazines. Wow, we're going to have heliports. We're going to have you know solar powered cars. We're going to have uh, all, all, all kinds of wonderful things. Um, and then the historians, there's a classic book I remember by Jane Jacobs called um, – hmm, it may have been called The Rise and Fall of the American City or something like that. But mm-hmm. as I recall, either in the last chapter in that book or as a follow-up essay, she pictured what the city of the future would be like. And this was dating from about 19 late 1950s, early 1960s. And basically what she said in that book was it's going to be bigger and dirtier. Yeah, uh, we're not going to have any. We're not going to have any moving sidewalks. We're not going to have any roads must roll. We're not going to have hell cars. It's just going to be more and bigger and more crowded of the same. And she turned out to be the one who was right. Yeah. Um, and basically, the futurists, the idea that we were going to have this absolutely pristine Frank R. Paul environment with you know elevated roadways and atomic powered cars and that sort of thing, um, none of that happened. One of the things I think, which is very uh, sanguine about science fiction, is it's beginning to think. More like Jane Jacobs and yeah. less like Popular Mechanics. If you look at Paolo Bacicolupi's futures, yes. they are – they're not dystopias and they're not, post, they're not really post-catastrophe worlds in the sense that there's a single catastrophe. They are extrapolations of a really grim future yeah. that essentially is nothing more than the continuation of what we have now.
1: Yes, well, it's it's like uh, I read an article to, uh, this just past week about a group of researchers in South Africa who have developed a nanotech tea bag that really? that you put into a water bottle, you know, and you can scoop foul water out of um, you know, a stream or whatever else it's all polluted, and drink straight out of the bottle, and it will completely filter all of the impurities, whatever they are out of the water and make it completely safe to drink. They co- these, these tea bags cost about half a cent each to produce. Mm-hmm. They, they kill all the bacteria they encounter and then are disposed, disposed of and the bottle gets reused. Uh, hmm. It seems to me that the future that we're seeing is a nanotech tea bag future rather than an iPad future. And if you send an iP- a functioning iPad back to 1939, they'd go, we're looking for the- this is our future. We're going to get this. If you, mm-hmm. if you showed them a nanotech tea bag, they'd be a, they'd be you know, amazed at it, but I think really disappointed.
0: They would, although there are a lot of science fiction stories in which you know, oh yeah, you know, you know, ca- Captain Captain Stevenson drop one of the uh, purification <laughs> tablets into this for this alien water and we'll be fine. Yes, um, that's, that's that's I guess that's the thing that amazes me is the future comes in the form of trivia, not in the form of revolutions. And mm. the revolutions that occur are the ones that so we've talked, I think we may have mentioned this before. You know, the most important revolution in our lifetimes is, is probably the Internet. Yes. And before uh, the, the, the classic example is, is Murray Leinstrom, all people, the, yeah uh, logic named Jill. But except for that, I mean, Asimov, Heinlein, Clark, all those people didn't see that.
1: No. No, I know it was, and, and was it predictable? I mean, uh, the seeds of it were around in, you know, in the '60s and everything else. But I mean, I, I even look sort of very much not only within my own lifetime, but in my own recent lifetime. And I mean, it it wasn't imaginable. I mean, when the first office, you know desktop computers rolled out, and I do sound like an old fart saying these sort of things, uh, at a work environment where somebody had you know a um, a typist had a desktop computer with a, a you know, a 10 meg, a, t- a 10 meg hard drive. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you, you never predicted that you would be downloading um, movies off the internet, or you'd be, you would know, be podcasting with people that if we bothered, and you and I tent not when we're recording this, this could be a full video conversation. We, we could in mm-hmm. fact, probably, I'm sure, uh, find a way to record it as a, as a split screen video thing. And people could watch us sitting in our lounge rooms or offices or wherever we might be, um, doing it. And the latest iPhone or whatever is now uh, you know, fully sort of video-enabled to go around talking to each other oh, in video, exactly. blah, blah, blah. Um, that's very science fictional. That was one of the classic science fiction things, a video phone. But it's not what you well, – it's not the way we phones, but, it. I mean, I mean, it's, it's not I – mean,
0: it's, it's, it's interesting to think that it's um, – what, 30, 33 years now since – am I right? 33 years since um, Star Wars even, which is not yes. a radical science fictional movie. But but the assumption in Star Wars was that you'd have holograms instead of emails. You'd be, People would be listening. People would be <laughs> calling up a three-dimensional hologram in their living
1: room and watching us talk. Uh, why hasn't that happened? Because because, because uh, we live in there the world. Are, oh, yeah. I've got to tell you why I'm watching this. Well, by yeah. and large. Yeah. Continue, yeah.
0: Well, I mean there are people like – I mean when you think about – one person I will give some credit for this um, is – I mean, Eileen Gunn wrote some stories in the 80s which were pretty much – she has people connected uh, sort of – Physically to what they I think I think the World Data Network or something like that, um, but you know Eileen had inside information. I mean Eileen had been working for Microsoft in the early yeah. days and so yes. forth and so on. You yeah. could kind of see this sort of thing happening. Yeah. But by and large, as, as the science fictional imagination has until recently, and it's, it's been, and again I'm giving credit giving credit to more recent writers, including people like Bruce Sterling and and Ted Chiang, who realize now. That the future is determined by the market for the future, not by what we want yes. to have happen, by what's going to sell. And one of the things that's brilliant about Ted Chang's novella, uh, the, the Life Cycle of Software Objects, is that the market is a huge player in that. It's just, yeah. you know, what happens if, if you create these artificial intelligences, what happens if their platform becomes outdated? mm, mm. Um, Absolutely. What happens then? And, and, and that's actually happening now in various ways. Yes. Uh, so so and, and, and a platform becomes outdated because it loses its sales – it loses its market share basically.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, and,
0: and, and Sterling is uh, – I, I, I've had some problems with some of his recent novels, but Sterling is absolutely brilliant at telling us how the market affects our future. And Gibson is uh Pretty
1: much as brilliant, I would say. Yeah, yeah, and you were saying that you saw some elements of it in uh, Hanu Rai and Yemi's novel as well. Mm-hmm. You know? so I have to say that when you're talking that I, um, I, I I had to laugh because um, because we do live in the 21st century, and because whilst we are skyping to record this podcast for people to listen to, and hmm. you, can add, you can hear me adding the inverted commas, can't you? Uh, I was yeah. I'm also following Twitter, and I'm following on Twitter. Uh, our good friend and uh, publisher slash editor, Liza Tromby, who I hope Mm -hmm. won't mind me reading her tweet aloud to our horde of uh, listeners. She says, uh, my titanium uh, tower smells faintly of baby pee. And I thought, that's a really perfect analogy for the real future and science fiction. You know, Mm -hmm. there's your titanium sci-fi tower, but you know what in it? Someone's got to live and there's a baby and it's going to be peeing still in 2250 kind of thing.
0: One of the things I would give credit to um, a lot of women science fiction writers Mm -hmm. who were not at the time thinking of themselves as feminist writers is having introduced that because there's a novel which actually is not that successful. Judith Merrill's uh, Shadow on the Hearth, which was I think 1949 or 1950 or atomic war novel, was about how to run a family. Yeah. to deal with your kids. It so was, it was a mother's perspective, uh, yeah. that only yeah. a mother, it was a mother's perspective. Yes. And a lot of those issues uh, that were completely invisible to, to people like Asimov and,
1: and yeah. Steinlein, uh,
0: were being talked about by people like that and Zena Henderson and uh, Idris Seabright people uh, from from the nineteen fifties. Nobody else was talking about them now. Na- then. Yeah. Now everybody has to think about them.
1: I think so one I think
0: one of the things I, one of the things that has helped rediscover Uh, some of the feminist issues in science fiction. I'm thinking about this because I was rereading Pamela Zoline's The Heat Death of the Universe, which may or may not even be a science fiction story, but certainly was one of the early examples of what we would now call slipstream. Uh, That I think in today's world, and you're one of these, you know, you're a dad, and and, and fathers now are willing to accept more domestic responsibilities than they probably were in the 50s. Now I think people are recognizing that baby pee is part of all of our futures. It's not just it's not just a women's <laughs> problem
1: anymore. Very, much, very, very much. As, as I mean, as it should be. But yes, mm-hmm. you know, the, the world has changed, uh, or, or at least for, for part of it. Whenever I get caught up in this conversation about how the world's changed and how we're all more involved in raising our children, and da, da 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 da, there's a little part of me as well that realizes, you know, sometimes you just live on that little liberal skin that sits floating across a vast, you know, conservative sea. And 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 maybe as as you quietly assert that sort of all is good and fine, sort of just over there to the left, it's not. You know, it's not at all. And you know, I exactly. have
0: to, I have to acknowledge that there's a generation behind ours, and including yours and mine in them, because mm. I'm, I'm I'm putting some of my uh stepchildren who are like in their late 30s early 40s mm-hmm. into that category eh, who are in some ways more regressive than the likes of ourselves probably well, yeah. uh, there are still in 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 the suburbs of chicago there are still guys and go back to the tv series Mad Men. Yeah. there are still guys who think you know i don't it's just it's just a flesh wound i can handle it you know don't send me to any damn doctor yeah um, that kind of attitude and uh it's 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 not gone. Uh, we, we can't pretend. It's, science fiction may be doing a better job uh, than it ever has of uh, recognizing the importance of women, partly because so many of the important writers are women. Yeah. But it hasn't changed the outside world. the The, the world is still there. the uh, The world of romance novels uh, is, I think, uh, I don't know, I, I I I I'm not a reader of romance novels, so I may be misrepresenting, but it seems to me it represents. A, a world that um, we would like to have think we'd like to think we've moved beyond. I was looking at the categories. Interesting thing to do. go on to the website of the Romance Writers of America and look at the categories of the Rita Awards, yep. because they're strange categories. Yeah, it's not like novel, novella, short story, media. It's like romance with strong romantic elements. That's a category. <laughs> Regency romance. That's a category. Uh, There's so many romance novels out there that they have to break them down practically by
1: theme. Well, I mean, let's be fair. We could have done that. I mean, our field could have gone that way. I mean, you could mm -hmm. imagine a best science fiction novel with really strong science fiction ideas. Uh, I suppose so. Best steampunk novel. Best space opera novel. You know?
0: Well act we, 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 to some extent we do that I mean we have the uh, sidewise awards for example we we're do. looking at a sub theme and saying we have to look at that I'm surprised there's not a steampunk award is there
1: not to my knowledge but you know there may be by the time we finish this podcast by,
0: by the time we finish <laughs> this podcast there will there will be one um, yeah it, 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 it's a way of doing it but it's a way of essentially uh, arguing that uh, you know the, the field is a collection of themes rather than a collection of ideas and um, yeah. or 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 a collection of artistic creations, which is what we like to pretend it is. Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, we could do best dystopian piece of cake, you know. Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, there probably, probably is enough stuff out there to not to, to have a, an award for best YA dystopian.
1: Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, <laughs> in fact, that seems to be one of the major trends right now. So that it wouldn't even shock me if you began to see something like that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. We're absolutely on, on – uh, Uh, on track for it. I should also say just quickly, I I am on the mailing list for New York City's Books of Wonder, right? And they sent me out a flyer for an email flyer for an event they're having for the release of the third Hunger Games novel by Suzanne Collins, which Locus has barely covered, I think. Um, And I think probably we should have, because you and I have talked often about the amount of science fiction in the field. And here's a straight science fiction novel Or a trilogy, which is Mm -hmm. so popular that they're having kids who are going to be there at midnight to pick up a copy of it. It's been covered in the New Yorker, for heaven's sake. Yeah, yeah. Um. And I saw somewhere else that, uh, I don't know, who is it? Uh, One of the major YA publishing houses has just picked up basically a space opera trilogy, Girls' Adventures in Space, um, Mm -hmm. to come out early next year that they think is going to be the next big thing that will save science fiction in their own. I mean, the actual, uh, I think it's David Levithan uh who says something to the effect to the effect i think it is but don't quote me but uh that this is going to sort of help transform the science fiction image for the younger readers and all that and i had a friend trying to um get persuade me that'd it be a good idea to do an anthology of stories down this line and they may even be right Uh you know um you know gossip girl in space kind of a thing. So there's there's actually a lot more science fiction than we ever thought there was, which is good, but it also says that maybe something that we have to sharpen up our own awareness of as well, which is good to know.
0: Well, a couple of years ago, you called our attention to Kathleen Dewey's um, uh, uh, – not Sacred Scars. Sacred Scars was the second one. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was the title of her first book? I'm blanking on – Oh, uh, Skin Hunger. Skin Hunger. Yes. Terrific books. Absolutely terrific books. And – For whatever reason, because of the segmentation of the market, Locust didn't get sent copies of those books. You found them on, I think, a World uh,
1: National Book Award. I I have to be really honest. What happened there was it... Was shortlisted, I think, for the uh, American Book Award or whatever it was. I think it was that it was. Right, right, And Justine label I was in New uh, New York on the way to World Fantasy that year, Uh and we were out at dinner with a bunch of people, and I remember we were – in fact, (laughs) this will tell you something. We were in Manhattan, and they were having a big launch for what was the latest Harry Potter book, and there was Uh billions of kids lined around the Barnes and Nobles and whatever. And we went in and uh, justine was going you have to have this we'll find you a first edition first printing which a friend of mine was talking about there's a mad thing the other day we were, we'll find that because you got to have that mm. you got to read it it's really good and also she pointed a another very good uh, just mainstream play. uh and that's how i came to it and then i pointed to charles and it ended up in fact with kathleen uh talking to charles about how she should be writing her books and then commenting on our podcast just yesterday or the day before Oh, wonderful! Yes. Um, so, she's, so, hello, uh, Kathleen. Who's listening?
0: Probably. Hello, Kathleen, and thank you for uh, for for paying attention to us because, uh, you know, we need to pay attention to to people like you. We need to pay attention to people that don't necessarily um, uh, the publishers. It's not the author's fault, but the publishers don't necessarily think to send these things to no. us. There was I was reading for the World Fantasy Awards. Uh, I I read two or three books. Uh, one of which uh, is very good. I'm not going to say whether it's on the ballot or not because I'm being coy. Uh, <laughs> that were yep. not sent to us as world fantasy judges. We found them. One of the judges yep. found uh, two of these books. And and they're both very good. And I and we never covered them in Locus yep. uh, because we never saw them in Locus. So, to yep. some extent, the, the, what we're depending on, and we're pleading to everybody who listens to this if you're a part of the network, if you know something that's sort of out of the mainstream, mm-hmm. A uh, small press which doesn't think it's doing science fiction, a uh, mainstream press that doesn't want to admit it's doing science fiction, uh, let us know about it because there's a lot of stuff like that that um, I think uh, is a really serious interest to um, to the kind of people who read Locus, and I'm saying a mm-hmm. compliment to those people because I think the kind of people who read Locus are gonna the, the, they're gonna read YA. Uh, the yes, one sir. thing I've said this, uh, I've talked to Nettie about this as a matter of fact. Um, one, I think one of the attractions of YA to science fiction and fantasy readers is A, uh, the adult science fiction and fantasy readers will not look down their noses at YA. They will read it if it's good. Yeah. Uh, and B, YA readers will not look down their noses at science fiction and fantasy if it's good. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and as a result, that's a huge chunk of the market, which, uh, which by the way, to, to give credit to Sharon November at Viking, she has made a very concerted effort to bring those markets together yes to get anthologies yes. that will be read both by ya readers and by science fiction and fantasy yes. readers yes. and i think to, to a large extent she succeeded
1: yes i mean I, and i personally owe her thanks i mean that's where my starry rift was published and she was a great supporter of it and where my <clears> life <throat> on mars will be published and she's a great supporter of it so yes very much <sighs> you know what gary before we well, dive we're, back we're in at... we're, mm-hmm. we're past well past the hour mark again my friend We did it again. Oh, how
0: did we do that? Because, because, let's face
1: it. What's horrifying? Well, not horrifying. What's interesting is, of course, we'd nattered for 45 minutes before this, so um, it tells you just how long we can chat for if we're given a chance. I'm going to throw something in, and then we'll we'll wind up, but not get off the line right away. But, and and it is with what are the books you're looking forward to reading immediately next? And I had encountered two books in the last three days, one of which I was waiting for arrived yesterday, and will not interest you at all. And one which I didn't know existed and I'm very excited about. Uh, And this is as a shout-out to Tansy Randall roberts who will be listening. I have Mm -hmm. a galley of Lois McMaster-Bujold's Cryoburn, the latest Miles Mm -hmm. from book. And I really love them. I I mean, the most recent one wasn't very good, I think. But by and large, I love them. Uh So this is what I'm going to be reading this weekend in all my spare time because I can't wait. I'm really excited. And I don't expect you to care get Charles mm-hmm. prepared, even a little bit but it's the kind of book I read for fun every now and again and there's something about them that energizes me for reading all the other stuff and the other book that I didn't know existed and this is awfully exciting I walked into Planet Books here in Perth and there sitting on the table was a stack of The Bird King and Other Sketches by Sean Tan
0: Really? Oh I've heard about that That Have I would you? love to see, I'm, I'm with you on that This is like a hundred, 140
1: page book of just sketches and stuff and I think I heard
0: f- about it because I think you tweeted about it.
1: But. Okay. Uh, yes, I did, actually. I did tweet about it when I came across it. And it's delightful. What's really funny is that some of the older sketches, uh, like there's a couple of sketches here from the mm. rabbits and there's whatever else, and I know how Sean treats his sketches or how he used to. I don't, I've, I've not actually been to his home in Melbourne, but I used to go around to his mm. house here when he was in Perth and when he was the art reviews editor for Eidolon and stuff and afterwards... And I've seen the sketches lying on the floor as his roller chair kind of goes over them and seen them with the coffee stains on them because eh, they're just sketches. He was doodling or something and he doesn't really particularly care. And you can see in some cases where they've taken these old sketches and they've had to clean them up a bit so they could go into the book because they're all crumpled and all that. I mean, the original piece for the, I mean, I'm looking right now at the original concept sketches for the cover of The Rabbits, which you might remember. Mm-hmm. And you can see where they've not been able to get the bit of magic marker off it, and the bits of you know like yellowing sticky tape that he'd used to hold it down, and all this kind of thing. But it's still the original sketch kind of thing. So, it's really interesting, lovely book, and one of three Sean Tan projects we can look forward to before Christmas. So if you're looking to save up for Christmas, that's coming Hit, before Christmas, no less. That's th- there's this, there's the Bird King and other sketches, which comes out at least here from Windy Hollow Books, and you can get from WindyHollowBooks.com.au, and I re- recommend you might because I don't know if it's sold in the United States at all. I mean, I, ah. I'm guessing it will. Uh, there's also going to be a deluxe edition of the Arrival. I don't know. Uh, in a two-volume, oh, really? Yeah, with a two-volume, a two-volume set with a whole extra uh, book of sketches and all that kind of stuff. So that's awfully exciting. And the other thing is, by in November, at least here in Australia, they will release the DVD of The Lost Thing, which is the 15-minute... Well, that's what I'm looking forward to. That's yeah. the 15-minute adaptation of, of the of the storybook, the one which we're all now expecting may well get him up for an Oscar as uh, best co-director of an animated short. Mm-hmm. And that would then probably make him... Would, it, would he be the first... Genre personality you know, from from kind of inside the field to end up at the Oscars. No, interesting maybe. question. Neil almost did, didn't he? Because I mean, uh, well, Coraline was. Let's see. Uh, well, he didn't. He didn't write Coraline, though, did he? Well, well, well he, he was there, but he, but I don't think he, he wasn't nominated. But Sean actually co-directed the animated feature, so he would yeah. be up for the uh, actually for the Oscar himself. He'd be one of the people nominated. So he may be the first direct nominee and I, and I claim him as one of ours, even though he maybe may only ever have been passing through but um, you mm. know yeah. I'm trying to think if
0: well no I, I, I think you may be right I doubt very much if Kubrick and Clark were up for nine for 2001 back in 1968 yeah, yeah. Uh, for screenplay and apart from that people have even been involved in, remotely in filmmaking uh, I I, I can't think of any offhand. Yeah. Um, and, and I have the to people say, who are yep. people who are successful screenwriters and and Hollywood writers. Um, I mean, you could name people like Charles Beaumont and Richard Matheson and uh, Lee and, and even Ray Bradbury and and George R R Martin for television. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of them got nominated. Yeah. Uh, I Rob Sawyer never actually wrote uh, any of the episodes. He may have written an episode for this series Flash Forward, which yeah. seems to have tanked at this point. Yes. I don't know if his episode ever got aired or not. But at any anyway, rate, not up for any awards on it. So as far as Oscars are concerned, I'm not sure there is anybody. Yeah. So Sean Tan could be the first. And I'm certainly looking forward to seeing that film.
1: Oh, I'm looking forward to it enormously. And uh, I think they're going to screen it at, at uh, Worldcon, which will Excellent. be a, a real highlight, frankly, of the week um so that that's that's a major thing and honestly i would actually watch the oscar you know, broadcast if he's going to be on it that would be mm. well, well worth it that would be, so, be great absolutely and and i think with that no and is there anything that you've got sitting there that you're really excited to be reading gary
0: what's actually sitting here the next thing after i finish the wesleyan anthology which i'm pleased with is uh is this massive brick of uh non by michael moorcock uh, okay yes and- it's uh, – and, and, and there the, are the, the two things. One thing which I'm – well, well, two things that are stunning about it. One is you realize this massive 700-page volume is maybe a third or a quarter of what they could have included in it.
1: Yeah. Uh, this is
0: all nonfiction. This is none yes. of, of a story. Um, and the second thing which is kind of fascinating to me about it um, – I forgot. <laughs> I, had, I had a point. I was going to make there. but um,
1: I, I hear it's, it's quite um, a lovely book.
0: It's designed by well, John it's a, beautiful. It's, a, it, it's a gorgeous book. Oh, this is the second thing, which is um, fascinating about it. There's a, there's a little introduction in which um, there is a description of how do you organize somebody who's written as much as Moorcock has. And I'm thinking we're talking about 780 pages, oh, sure, sure. which represents a small portion of his nonfiction output. While he was doing… All these novels and short stories in a, in a dozen different genres. I mean nobody – I don't know anybody I'm, – I'm, I'm, I'm cheating on one of the lines, which I'm sure is going to be in my review. I don't know anybody who claims to have a handle on Michael Moorcock's career. No. How can you read all that stuff in many different genres? Um, so the introduction of this book says we couldn't figure out how to organize this stuff at all, so we decided to organize it in random order.
1: How encouraging. How encouraging. Well, well can, I, can, can
0: I say for to, to a reader, make it more adventurous? Yeah. There's no there's no index to the book.
1: <laughs> can I can I say immediately? And I know you're not attacking the book, but in the book's defence, that probably doesn't impact terribly negatively on a reader, but it's a bitch for for a reviewer <laughs> and critic. It really is.
0: I, I, I was, was going to say, if you want to use this book as, if, if, okay, yeah, for a reviewer and critic, it's not helpful. Um, for a reader, it encourages you to just dip in and hear. It doesn't make any difference what order you read. Yeah, There's just yeah. a long autobiographical essay at the beginning. There are a few pieces that are, a few sections that are kind of chronological. For somebody who is, is likely to make use of this book in the long run, a Morcox scholar, it's going to be a nightmare. You're just going to have to make your own index for it because yeah, yeah. Uh, the stuff is in there at random. Um, but again, he's one of those people who um, who is a fascinating enough mind that you you, you know, you, you, you'll read everything that he you writes. You'll read anything that you write. It's not that it's all going to be brilliant or insightful.
1: It's all going to be interesting. Fact, uh.
0: Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's, here's a weird thing about reading somebody who's um, a, a, a genius like Morcock. Let's face it. He's a genius. Is that you realize every once in a while, um, maybe fairly frequently, he writes a book review or an essay, which is just pretty ordinary. Not hmm. bad. Not scintillating, though. You're thinking mm. he's just okay. It, it, it's just pretty good. Yeah. And you think, okay, he's he's, he's one of us after all. <laughs>
1: not,
0: not, not everything he writes is going to blow our mind.
1: Oh, Okay. Well, ha- don't hang up. But I'm uh, I'm just going to say I think we might uh, end there and say, hopefully that if I if, if I can get everything done, we'll get this up fairly quickly and we'll you know, be pushing on to episode 17 next weekend. Good talking Excellent. to you as always. Good to talk to you as okay. well. Take okay. care. Bye. You too. Bye. I've turned I think have I turned off the recorder now? Turned off the recorder? I'm trying to. i I'm, I'm.